You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad and today we're going to bring you a recording from a commemorative event in Ottawa on the 17th of May remembering the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. It was hosted by Charlie Angus MP and it uh, included the Irish Ambassador to Canada, Dr. Emma McKee. We also hear from uh, retired General John de Chastelaine. We hear from James Maloney, who is the chair of the Interparliamentary Irish Group in Canada, and Conor Murphy, who is an MLA in the north of Ireland. And uh, we also have a beautiful rendition of the Irish National Anthem and the Canadian National Anthem by Jimmy Carton. And afterwards we hear Jimmy provide a most moving rendition of The West Awake. Uh, we're going to head over to Charlie Angus, who was the MC for the evening. My name is Angus, so you might think I'm Scottish, which I am. Um, <laughs> but I, I did marry into the Irish. And uh, the reason I just want to say, as opening remarks, is that I remember as a kid, my, uh, my Catholic grandmother and my Protestant grandmother, and the trauma, those were the hunger strike days, and the darkness and the mindless violence and hearing my grandmother sit at the kitchen table a Presbyterian orange woman and a Catholic green talking about how peace had to come and I always remembered it was my Protestant grandmother saying people can live without sectarian violence people can live in peace and it didn't seem possible and it is possible and we are on the 25th anniversary of the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement and we have to remember that peace is fragile. It's fragile all over the world. So as long as there's peace in Ireland, we can say to other warring regions, we can make peace. That's why not only remembering the Good Friday Accord, but committing it so that it goes forward and it becomes the full gathering of people and peace and democratic society, it is a symbol. So that's why we're here. And we're here also because Canada played a big role. And we often in Canada don't connect our role to the heroes that we had over there. And we have one of those heroes tonight, uh, General de Chastelin. But we have many, many, many. So it's up to us to know our history of what we did, the little part that we played to bring peace and to recommit ourselves to the, to the peace in Ireland and to make sure that the people on the island of Ireland can live together as one. So uh, I'm going to begin with the land acknowledgement um, because we are on the unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation. Uh, we use that word unceded. I work for the Algonquin Nation. They never surrendered their land to anybody. And... Uh, Ambassador McKee, who's here, gave me a good history lesson that the Irish were the first colonization project of the British Empire, and they did a damn good job, but they still failed. 800 years later, the Irish are still here, and 800 years from now, the Algonquin people will still be here, and we will always be guests on their land. So, so we, are, we recognize our relation to the first people, and we commit ourselves to the reconciliation that we must do in Canada, because we've done a lot of harm and we can do better, and we will do better. Uh, I'm going to turn it over now uh, 
when they were asking us about who who could come over for the 25th anniversary, who would be here, who would you think would be the most important people to ask? And I said, well, geez, every time I read the newspaper or magazine, Bono, that guy Bono is always saying that he did it all. And they were like, well, do you want Bono to come? And I was like, nah, let's get a real singer. So I want to introduce... Uh, one of the great Irish singers, Jimmy Carton. Uh, if you don't know, he's one of the greatest singers that ever came out of Ireland. You ask my daughters, and they'll clock you if you if you disagree, because they grew up on Jimmy Carton. Jimmy Carton has been a family friend forever, and we are honored to have him sing the national anthems to begin to begin a night of celebration and remembrance. Thank you, Jimmy. We sing the national anthem of my native country, to be followed by the national anthem of my adopted country. Representatives from the various political parties tonight, and I know I'm going to forget someone because I can't see everyone at the back of the room, but I know that we have uh, Minister Hussain came out, uh, our leader Jagmeet Singh, uh, Mr. Bergeron from the Bloc, and thank you for meeting with friends of Sinn Féin today. Uh, Elizabeth May is here. Um, I thought I... S- you're pointing... Oh, James Maloney. I want to give a special shout-out to James Maloney from the... 
Irish Canadian Friendship Society. They do so much work here. There's my friend, Gabriel. Correct? Oh, I blew it. I always blow it. Xavier. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you for meeting today. And was Fred Falk here as well? Okay, at the back. Um, who is not here is Seamus O'Regan, who sent me a message. He was going to speak tonight, but he said he wanted to speak uh, to recognize the incredible work that um, General de Chasselon had done. And uh, I said that I would pass on Seamus's deep regards for the general, and I would like to turn it over to General de Chastelin now, uh, because he played such an important role in making the peace happen. So, General, if you please. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. It's a huge honor and a pleasure to be here. Um, it seems like no time at all that I got involved in the Northern Ireland peace process, but of course that was a large number of years ago. And if I had known then what I was getting into, um, I might not be here looking at you tonight. Uh, but I didn't. I was um, I was asked in uh, in 1995 to join a three-man group under George Mitchell from the United States uh, to address an issue which was holding up the peace process in Northern Ireland. Uh, the IRA was not on ceasefire. Uh, they had named a ceasefire in 1964 on the understanding that the reasons for which they had taken up arms in the first place would be addressed politically. Uh, they felt that that hadn't happened. Uh, Sir Patrick Mayhew, who was the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, said that there would be no talks with political parties unless the IRA decommissioned that weapon. And the Republicans said they weren't going to decommission anything until they found out what the results would be of addressing their own concerns. And it went into a period of stasis. Uh, so the two Prime Ministers, Bertie Ahern and, um, no, it wasn't Bertie Ahern, it was uh, John Bruton and uh, Tony Blair put together a three-man group uh, called the International Body with George Mitchell, who was the President's man on Ireland, uh, and the uh, Irish wanted somebody from a neutral, preferably Scandinavian country and chose the former Prime Minister of uh, Finland, Harry Hokery. And the British wanted somebody from a Commonwealth country with a military background. I had just retired as Chief of the Defence Staff for the first time. I hadn't got it right the first time. For the second time, I hadn't got it right the first time. And had been named Ambassador to Washington in the interim, and they got me back to do it again properly. Um, and I had nothing else to do, so I said, sure, um, I'll, I'll take part. And we met for a week and came up with what became known as the six Mitchell principles of good government and nonviolence. And I would like to quote them to you, but I'd have to look them up on my uh, computer to do that. But the purpose of these principles was that those who wished to take part in all party talks, which is what the government would like to see happen, uh, would only get to take part in those talks if they signed on to the principles. 
the talk should be in three strands the first affecting only the British government and what changes it might be made and that was only for the British government to be involved the second was the relationship between North and South in Ireland and the third was the relationship between the Irish government and the British government and that was totally for those two governments so the second aspect of it the relationship between the two was what we came together to discuss and worked on for a period of essentially two years before we came up with uh, agreements and during that time the IRA broke their ceasefire uh, in Canary Wharf and, or in a place close to Canary Wharf South Key um, and the loyalist parametric groups went off ceasefire too and things went backwards and forwards until the point where we had the Good Friday Agreement on uh, Good Friday of 1998 uh, I sat up with Mitchell and Hokery the night before the Good Friday Agreement and George said to us uh, what do you guys think of the chances we'll have an agreement tomorrow because it had been determined that if we didn't get an agreement then uh, the whole thing would collapse uh, David Trimble would pull the unionists out of the talks and, uh, and that would be it and I said I think maybe about 40% chance we'll get it and uh, Hokery said well no I, I'm a bit more positive I think maybe about 42% <laughs> and George said I think you're both being very optimistic uh, the next morning we had the agreement largely because David Trimble overcame his uh, concerns and voted for it to pass and it did and the rest is history although it took a number of years to do everything to get uh, uh, all the parts of the Belfast Agreement the Good Friday Agreement uh, in place one of which was the decommissioning of arms uh, I should have kept my mouth shut because they decided that it would be an independent international commission on decommissioning I was asked once by the Prime Minister of Holland who said can you explain to me what an independent commission on decommissioning is and I said how long have you got um, and I was named the chair of it and we were given the task of carrying out decommissioning which over a long period of time uh, and with a number of fits and starts we were able to do so that by 2010 we were able to say to the government we believe we have decommissioned all the arms of the IRA, the UDA uh, the UDG um, and a few fringe groups um, so that was it that was the uh, Good Friday Agreement it passed it, implementation took some hits and starts but uh, I think it is held true it's uh, the basis of the absence of violence on the island of Ireland uh, and that just has to be a good thing and it was an enormous privilege for me to be a part of it along with subscribing people as the late now Harry Hookery uh, and George Mitchell who sadly I think is soon to be late he's 90 with cancer and uh, not well at all but that was it um, thank you for having me here and thank you for letting me talk about this fairly momentous occasion which seems like 100 years ago but it was only what, 25 years ago thank you very much Uh, we'll ask uh, Dr. Eamon McKee, uh, Ambassador for Ireland, to come and uh, give us some words. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Uh, it's hard to believe it's 25 years ago. It seems to go quicker and quicker. Somebody said it takes 21 years to get to 21, and it only takes 9 to get to 30. 
then after that it gets a lot quicker I can tell you um, but I do want to add uh, my thanks to General John Shastling he was there and it's hard to believe it he was there for 15 years I don't think he believed you were signing up for something that would take 15 years um, and it was always an interesting reflection that when the United States or people from the United States came to help us they came under the stars and stripes as, as kind of representatives of the US government and that was important it, was, it, it gave a lot of heft to it and uh, uh, Senator Mitchell was the, the banker the chairman so when we agreed text he would take it and it couldn't really be changed and uh, that had nothing to do with Sinn Féin by the way that was more to do with the British government but don't, don't, don't quote me on that um, but the, um, the reality was that when we involved Canadians in the peace process and you should take time here the number of Canadians who were involved in the peace process they came as individuals with integrity and respect that's what they were there for um, and they were there for the long haul and whether it was John de Chastelin or Justice Corey who I worked very closely with God rest him he, he was a phenomenal figure in the peace process as well um, just as the Supreme Court came to tackle six really really difficult cases and did so again with incredible integrity um, Justice Hoyt on the Savile Inquiry uh, went on for 12 years and I think we have to remember that the Good Friday Agreement wasn't just about a group of negotiators the Good Friday Agreement was about a process that had gone on for years and that needed an awful lot of reinforcement and sandbagging and confidence building like the Savile Inquiry into Bloody Sunday or the Justice Corey process it was about building up uh, confidence in the rule of law and the administration of justice so that the use of violence could be returned the monopoly on the use of violence could be returned to a state that people had confidence in so we were wrestling with really big issues over huge spans of time uh, I joined the department and Anglo-Irish Division in 1986 86, one year after the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985 um, and the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 85 was absolutely a key pillar uh, that led the way to the Good Friday Agreement and I always remember Fridays in Anglo-Irish Division because we had a team of individuals up in Palace Barracks outside Belfast 24-7 trying to improve and address the causes of conflict but they had to go up under heavy security and so all of my colleagues who went up there and it doesn't matter whether they were senior colleagues or they were the cook and the, the chef and the driver and the clerks, they all took a risk that they were going to get, uh, they, they could end up in, in trouble or, or even dead. And so they would come down on a Friday and the team would shift for the weekend. And when you look back in those times, it was pretty grim. It was pretty awful, actually. Um, and that was 86. And then you go to 94 uh, with the ceasefires and then 98 with the, with the agreement and then I think it's 2007 before we have functioning uh, institutions in, in Northern Ireland and here we are 25 years later and we're still reali realising the vision of the Good Friday Agreement but that I think testifies to the, in the durability of the agreement and its vision and people often talk about the elasticity of language but in fact if you read the agreement it's very direct about what it tries to achieve and the fact that we're still trying to implement it fully I don't think just detracts from the integrity of the agreement and its vision um, so I do want to commend uh, because I do think that without the Canadian support uh, it wouldn't have been possible to make the progress that we have done uh, over, the, over the decades on the peace process so again thank you John for everything that you've done and also a round of applause for Mary Ann because she has to put up with all of those long absences 
and it, and it wasn't easy. I mean, decommissioning cut to the heart of the conflict in many ways. And I remember the year after the Good Friday Agreement, I was one of those travellers who went around Northern Ireland, and I met two Republican representatives, and they gave me a live round, threw it across the table, up in Derry, take that back to Dublin and tell them that's the only decommissioning they're ever going to see. That was, that was the message. So we were up against it. It took a long time. But the feeling was, no, it has to be done. And uh, you have to commend all of those people who are involved, including the Republican movement who brought it about and really sealed the peace. And that's the platform that we, we can build on. You know, um, One thing, though, I think that Canada, and, and I've, I've come to this conclusion more and more as I, the longer I've been here, is that Canada is a huge cultural and intellectual resource for us in, in Ireland. Um, because you have managed in this country to take divergent loyalties and create a nation out of it, unified under a flag like this. And when you look at that flag, you have to remember, of course, that it was a man from Northern Ireland that led the team that created that flag, that image. Paddy Reid, people have forgotten about. So anytime you look at the Canadian flag, remember it was Paddy Reid from Northern Ireland <laughs> created. Um, and then I tried, I, we have this flag, our own flag, uh, that has two traditions, and in a way, Canada, you know, united by peace, in a way, Canada has achieved that. Because the history of the Irish in, in, in Canada is actually quite a, a difficult sectarian history for many, for, for many years in the 19th century. But no matter who they were that came to, to Canada from Ireland, and even somebody like Ogle Gowan, the first Grand Master of the Orange Order, eventually they say, well, let's just leave it behind. The sectarianism at home, let's leave it behind. We've got the room here to create something different. So in a way... Canada has realised the vision of that flag and what we have to do in Ireland is continue to actually realise that at home and I think Canada is going to be a great resource and friend to us in the future even more so than in the, uh, in the past so um, with that I want to thank uh, Connor Murphy uh, for making the trip here as well please admire his new blazer because his suitcase is in, is in Pearson Airport somewhere so, um, and I'd like to uh, thank Charlie Angus as well for hosting, for hosting this event uh, James Maloney, the great chair of the Parliamentary Friendship Group. James, again, thank you so much for all your efforts. And uh, yeah, thank you. Well, we're going to, before we have Connor come up, I'll ask James if he'd come up and say a few words on behalf of the Irish uh, Parliamentary Association. What can I say? Look, I, um, General de Chastelon, the first time I went to Belfast, uh, I arrived and I had a tour of the city, and I tell people I'm Canadian. And time and time again, when I would tell people I'm from Canada, they would mention your name. So the impact you had is uh, 25 years later is still there, and we've, we've, we've seen the impact now. The ambassador talked about the integrity and the durability of the Good Friday Agreement. We've seen that as a result of Brexit, um, the work that you have done laid the foundation for what we're able to accomplish today. And so we owe you a debt of gratitude that is, um, I can't frankly put it into words. I know Seamus wanted to be here today, um, and I'm a poor substitute, I might add. Uh, so, <laughs> Charlie, thank you for inviting me up. But honestly, sir, it's a, it's a great honor to get to know you and Marianne. Um, and your humility. I, I, I spoke at a conference a few, 
uh, weeks ago about the Good Friday Agreement. And I spoke to the ambassador. I said, I need to prepare for this thing. What should I do? He said, well, Jamie, read the Good Friday Agreement. (laughs) Good advice. So I did. And when you read it, the plain text, you understand why it is so durable and how it's so important. But it wouldn't have happened without you uh, and, and so many other Canadians, Justice Peter Corey, Justice Hoyt, Al Hutchison. I mean, part of the celebration of the 25th anniversary involves reminding Canadians, not just Canadians of Irish heritage, how important the contribution was, but Canadians at large. Because because of your leadership, this wouldn't have happened, and we're seeing the uh, effect of that now. So thank you. Charlie, thank you for, for now. I had a great meeting. Minister Murphy, thank you for coming here today. And you made a, a point today that resonated with me. It's about the last 25 years, but it's now about the next 25 years. And because of the Good Friday Agreement and because of uh, the good work of the General, uh, we're able to have a strong foundation for the next 25 years. So thank you, sir, for joining us here tonight. Well, I want to uh, give a shout-out as well to our friends at Sinn Féin who uh, have worked with me for a number of years. They keep calling me to help, uh, and I'll do anything for the peace process. And, and I met some great, great uh, representatives from Ireland, and uh, we're going to introduce uh, Connor Murphy uh, for Nurian Armagh, uh, former Minister of Finance in Northern Ireland, one of the negotiators. I'd like to apologize for the fact that uh, someone stole all your suits on the plane and your, your, your baggage is probably still in Dublin Airport. But my daughter never got her bags back from Dublin Airport, so I'm just, I'm just saying we're even now. Uh, so anyways, I'd like to inter- introduce uh, Connor Murphy to talk about uh, where we're at and where we need to go. So I want to thank you for coming over to visit us on this important occasion. I'm very, very happy to be here tonight with you all to celebrate the achievements of the Good Friday Agreement and particularly to celebrate Canada's role in that. Uh, I also want to thank Canada Air for having me attired tonight. Uh, when they lost my baggage last night, they offered to buy me a new suit uh, to come here. I didn't realise I was in a hostage exchange situation with the suitcases. <laughs> Perhaps uh, General de Chasson could come back and play some role in, in between Canada and Dublin and trying to arrange an exchange. Uh, but uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you, Charlie, for organising this. Uh, thanks also. I met James earlier. The Friends of, of Ireland uh, caucus in the Parliament, which is very, very important uh, to all of us in Ireland. Uh, and, and thanks to Friends of Sinn Féin Canada. Uh, this is my, I have been out for some time to Canada, but I have managed, uh, I think, to get around most of it, with the exception I keep reminding Alan of the Maritimes, which is the, the one gap in, in Canada that I would like to, like to get to some stage. I managed to go from the West Coast right through to here and into Quebec as well. Uh, so uh, thank you very, very much for having me. Uh, I think it is important uh, and, and many people have done it that we do recognise and, and the photograph montage which has been playing behind us uh, I think bears testimony to that uh, the, the real contribution uh, that, that Canada has made towards our peace process to the Good Friday Agreement which is the key milestone in our peace process uh, and to all that has happened since uh, I, 
and our our agreements, uh, as, as others have said, many thought we were living in a problem which was intractable, that, that no solution could be found. Uh, but I've, as I've said to people since I've been over here uh, today, the right ingredients at the right time, the right people coming together, the will among political parties to try and find a solution uh, to our ongoing problem, the international support in relation to that, the, the kind of groundwork that was done by many, many people over many years ahead of that and working with communities and trying to uh, raise tensions or raise lower tensions and raise expectations to raise educational opportunities for people all of those were ingredients that went towards kind of making that moment that, that was the Good Friday Agreement and that was critical to us I had mentioned to others when I was chatting tonight uh, in, in our, from our perspective from Sinn Féin we had a great many reservations going into negotiations I mean, we, we have a lot of historical experience of, of Irish people negotiating with the British uh, and, and how things went badly wrong in the aftermath of all of that uh, right over centuries and particularly uh, the partition of Ireland was a direct consequence if you like of a failed uh, negotiation and a failed attempt to try and, and see through uh, a successful outcome to independence so we were very conscious of all that and we had many friends in the ANC who had just been through that process in South Africa and they in turn were very very helpful to us not only in preparing ourselves for the kind of compromises and negotiations and what they meant uh, but also for preparing our own community our own support base in that regard and many of and come over to talk directly to the people who supported us to try and prepare that ground for, for negotiations. But tonight, I think in particular, we, we and I would like to celebrate uh, the Canadian input to that, given that we are here in, the, in, in Ottawa. Uh, and, and many people have mentioned uh, General John de Chasselin and his pivotal role uh, in relation to that. And he, of course, as, as, as want underplays and downplays his, his role and his contribution to all of that. But if it, if it hadn't been the respect and I'm not surprised, uh, as James has said, that when, when you mention Good Friday Agreement in Canada, the first name that comes to anybody, the taxi drivers or the milkmen or whoever is about to meet in Belfast or anywhere else in the north or in Ireland, generally will mention uh, General John de Chasselin because his integrity and the trust that he was able to engender among people. Uh, and I lived in South Armagh. Uh, it was the most militarised part of the, uh, the entire conflict. Uh, we lived with the, the might of the British Army around us on all of our hills and uh, every village was dominated by it and in some senses uh, some parts are still dominated by the relics of, of that period uh, in South Armagh uh, to get people from that mindset of fighting a 30 year war against the British uh, into the mindset of considering how to put weapons beyond use uh, at a time when the British uh, military might was very very evident on a very daily basis around us was no mean achievement and it took a lot of skill, a lot of work and if it hadn't been for the trust in the integrity of General de Chasselin uh, and others that he was involved with then I don't think that process would have been possible and that was in itself a key part of the Good Friday Agreement. That was a key part in delivering peace because the Good Friday Agreement wasn't about resolving all of the conflict because we want a united Ireland. That's our reason for being in politics. That's, we believe it's in the best interests of all of the people who live on the island of Ireland. Uh, and, and unionism wants to retain the link with Britain. But rather than having a conflict and a, a war over all of that, and rather than having a war with the British state and its involvement in Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement created a space where those pursuits could continue to be pursued uh, through peaceful and democratic means. So I am still as committed to United Ireland as I was before the Good Friday Agreement was signed, uh, and I'm sure many in the unionist community are still committed to union, but we have a space and a place to try and resolve that. And as others have said, flawed as that is, and it's an imperfect peace, and certainly an imperfect 
political process because we're currently without a government uh, it still is and we have been around the world talking to other communities who are trying to grapple with the idea of building conflict resolution process it still is an example internationally on what can be achieved if people come together and the right ingredients are put in place uh, to make that happen and, and I am always humbled by how much hope we have given other parts of the world Palestine, we've been in Colombia we've been in Iraq, we've been with the Kurdish people, uh, we've been in, in Sri Lanka and in the Philippines uh, and very many conflicts right across the world just telling people our own experience in the hope that that may help them in terms of what they're grappling with uh, at this time. So it's not just the legacy of what uh, the Canadian input did uh, in Ireland but it's a, it's a legacy of what, how that translates across the world in terms of what a successful conflict resolution peace process can look like. And there are many other contributions. People have mentioned Judge Peter Corey, uh, S.E. Warren Almond featuring quite regularly in all of those pictures uh, and there are many many others who made a very very significant contribution and we in Ireland are eternally grateful uh, for all of that uh, because we recognise rightly that imperfect as our peace is and unfinished as our political process is because I do believe that we are heading towards constitutional change in Ireland. I do believe we are heading towards a situation where we can transform Ireland uh, and have a unified country that is in charge of its own affairs and self-determination but one which takes the principles of the Good Friday Agreement. That will be the template for going forward in the next 25 years. The human rights and the uh, quality provisions in the Good Friday Agreement. The sense that no community will, as we were when, when my parents and my grandparents were growing up in the north of Ireland, post-partition, no community will be marginalised or left behind or disregarded or have their culture or, or economic rights trampled upon. That that template, which is the Good Friday Agreement, which was painstakingly put together by very clever and good minds, uh, will persevere in the next 25 years so I think as James has said we look to the next 25 years we are frustrated of course by the, the imperfection of our own process, the fact that unionism does come, struggle to come to terms with the fact that huge demographic changes happen in Ireland, huge political changes happening, uh, things are moving and it's our responsibility as leaders to engage with that change and to make sure that we plan in a coordinated and a sensible and a constructive way for the future and that's what we call on the Irish government to play a full part in all of that as well uh, and also the British government's approach of, of uh, certainly under the current uh, Conservative Party has been disruptive I think towards our peace process, the idea of Brexit pursued without any regard uh, for the implications for Ireland, for the fact that involvement in the European Union meant, in the customs union in the single market, meant the removal of all of the infrastructure in the border which had so uh, decimated and devastated our country for a hundred years uh, the idea of that coming back as a consequence of the pursuit of Brexit uh, was just an anathema, not just us as Irish Republicans, but many people in Ireland uh, who, who support and value the peace, uh, that the, the, the ending of that visible border, although we still have a constitutional border, the ending of that that has brought. So the kind of reckless approach to the British government had to disregard all of that uh, and, and the painstaking work that had been done by previous British governments, in fairness to them, and Tony Blair's government, uh, by Dublin governments, uh, by international support Borders, uh, and by many people of goodwill across the world and by people in Ireland north and south uh, to try and achieve that agreement was was uh, put in some jeopardy uh, by that reckless pursuit of Brexit. Now we've got a, an uneasy equilibrium in all of that uh, but I do think that the, in the bigger picture uh, Britain is heading off in its own direction 
I think Ireland's place is in Europe and I think that increasingly an, uh, 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 our place has always been in Ireland so there's never been any doubt in all of that but I think increasingly in the north of Ireland uh, a number of people are beginning to then assess which union uh, do they want to belong and do they want to be attached to a union which is heading off into in my view economic downturn and isolation or one which is part of the fastest growing economy in the European Union and one which is outward looking uh, and relies uh, in all of its friends internationally which are hugely important to us, all of those people who have that uh, emotional connection to Ireland, all of those people who influence right across the world who have a very practical connection to Ireland as well uh, how we can utilise that to build a better Ireland uh, for all our people and particularly for all our young people and those generations who were forced to emigrate over many many years uh, now people go and visit other parts of the world uh, more through choice than through necessity although necessity is still a part of that and there are many many things that need to be fixed in Ireland north and south uh, in the time ahead but I think there's a huge amount of goodwill if we're a very small country we're not a big military power we're not a big economic power but we punch way above our weight internationally in terms of that relationship that we have with people right across the world and that is so important to us who live in Ireland and that's why the ongoing interest of Canada and the Canadian people is so important uh, to us in the time ahead because this the Good Friday Agreement was a huge event in itself but it was the beginning of something it wasn't the end of something and that journey is continuing and it's going to continue for the next number of years until we have a peaceful and a reconciled and a prosperous Ireland which is in charge of its own affairs and that's the ultimate destiny uh, and we have to help some people along in that journey uh, and we're determined and, uh, to do that and the, the appearance as I think has been mentioned of uh, Michelle O'Neill our leader in the north at not just the funeral of the Queen but at the coronation of the king was a clear demonstration for us as Irish Republicans have certainly no uh, love of the idea of monarchy regardless of whether it's British monarchy or any other monarchy we're Republicans but it was all it was a determination to say to those in Ireland who will remain in Ireland beyond a change uh, that their allegiance to uh, British identity their uh, attachment to the royal family will be respected in a new Ireland uh, and we don't intend to create cold spaces for anyone the way cold spaces were created in the north of Ireland state uh, for our parents and for our grandparents so there is a lot of exciting work to be done there is enormous potential we need your ongoing support for that we need your ongoing interest and your ongoing attachment to Ireland and what great future Ireland can have and the people of Ireland can have I thank you very much uh, for having me here tonight for Charlie Angus for organising this event uh, I'm, I'm deeply honoured to be able to pay a personal tribute to John de Chastelin and to the other Canadians who played such a vital role in the success that we have today uh, and I wish uh, you continued interest in Ireland and continued support for all that we're trying to do in Ireland. Gormila Mayagos Kalev. Well, thank you. Um, I, I don't want uh, Connor to go anywhere um, because this is a moment I think where he's he's put out a call that this isn't. We're not celebrating some historic. We're celebrating a commitment to go forward. And we know our cousins south of the border carry a big stick and got a lot of attention, but I'm here to ask you and ask Connor, if you need Canada, you call, and we will be there. And I would like to invite all the elected representatives who would like to commit to working with Ireland to come forward. Uh, we'd like to invite uh, the general to be with us, and we take a photograph to show that across party lines, across our various constituencies, across this great country, 
that if Ireland needs us to help, we will be there and we will make it happen. So I'd like to invite uh, the dignitaries and to come up and uh, we'll take a photo. When all beside a vigil keep, thou wast asleep, thou wast asleep. Alas and well, mayor and weep, while Connaught lies in slumber deep. All lakes and plains smile fair and free, mid rocks their guardian chivalry. Sing, oh, let man learn liberty from crashing winds and lashing seas. For often in O'Connor's van to triumph dashed each kind of plan and swift as deer the Normans ran through costly paths and Ardrahan and the later times saw deeds as brave and glory God's clan records grave. Sing, oh, they died the land to save at Auckland slopes and Shannon's way. If when all a vigil keep, thou wast asleep, thou wast asleep, alas and well, mayor and weep, while Connaught lies in slumber deep. But hark a voice like thunder spake the west awake the west awake sing Oh, <laughs>
brought them sitting in Chinese time of who is Emily for uh, Yuri and Sotama. And uh, welcome to the nice time here in Canada. Um, I recorded your what you said earlier and I'll be sharing that with the listeners, but what I would like if you could possibly explain for me. The agreement that has just been approved, what does it mean to the people of the North? The protocol arrangements. Well, Brexit was a bad deal and is a bad deal for the North Irons, a bad deal for the island. And the people were asked for their opinion on that and they voted against Brexit. And now we were taken out of Europe against our wishes. And that was not just nationalism, that was a broad section of society in the North didn't want to see Brexit. Because we knew it would be damaging, economically damaging, the potential of a hard border where the membership of the European Union had more or less melted away the visible border. Uh, So we also knew it would be damaging in terms of trade and economic relations because Europe is our biggest market you know it's the biggest market available it's the biggest market in the world and, and, and so what we wanted to try and do were to find arrangements to undo the worst elements of Brexit and that's where the protocol came from so we made a case in Europe when we had uh, MEPs in the European Parliament and the Irish government made a case uh, to say listen Brexit could be very damaging to the island of Ireland we need particular arrangements to recognize not only just the Good Friday Agreement but all that is slowed in terms of the peace process for the island of Ireland and to make sure we don't set up barriers between north and south because they're impossible to enforce anyway now, if may, if My understanding was if I did understand with the dairy sector that the way milk operates in Ireland is you could have the product over and across the border in both directions 20-30 times from when it comes from the cow to where it ends up as an end product Yeah, well you have Obviously, the, the dairies, the large dairies, gather them out. They may take it to the north to be processed. It then goes back to the south. You know, there's uh, uh, that happens. Guinness make their their Guinness in Dublin. They take it up to Belfast to be put into cans. They take it back down to Dublin. So all of these things are part of the the single market, part of the customs union. That seamless transition of goods north and south. And, and Brexit is going to be a barrier to, to that. It's going to cause chaos. Absolutely, and it was going to decimate our agri food industry, which is hugely important to the island of Ireland. So at least the protocol undoes some of that damage. It doesn't fix every issue in relation to Brexit and there will be other problems that will arise but it, it fixes some of them and, and we're grateful for that. So what does it mean for the dairy sector now that what was pre-Brexit can, you can return to that basically? Would that be fair to Well that's the intention is to make sure that we have that kind of seamless arrangement and bear in mind that only applies for goods and only applies for trades. Yeah. You know services and other things will not be uh, sorted out by the protocol. So there will still be barriers uh, in relation to how business is done on the island of Ireland. But the important thing in the protocol was to try and undo some of the damage of Brexit. And as I understand it now also, business in the north of Ireland has a seamless access to Yeah, there, there are some additional, I mean you don't change trading arrangements without bringing in some additional buyers, but there, the, the, the purpose of the protocol negotiations was to try and minimise all of those things. Okay. There always were checks in the Irish Sea for, for livestock coming across and back, always has been since the formation of the state, but there were some additional barriers. there's been
been good work done to try and minimise that to make sure that uh, that people you know can have a frictionless trade. Part of the big issue that we had was you know a lot of big companies in in Britain don't supply to the north anyway because it's too much hassle for them. A lot of big companies weren't prepared for Brexit because it was really agreed on Christmas Eve and put into place on New Year's Day. So they decide rather than try and engage with what this meant for them, they just decided not to trade with the north. It's only 1.8 million people. It's the size of a uh, you know a, a medium city in Britain. Uh, so they weren't going to trade with it. Uh, and so some of that was because British firms weren't prepared for Brexit. It wasn't necessarily that there were barriers in the sea. But I think that there is better understanding of trading arrangements and we can try and smooth those out east-west and north-south as best we can. The level of trade between north and south and south and north has really, really grown over the last couple of years. I think that's good for businesses in both parts of the island. The current impasse, how optimistic are you that that will sort itself out reasonably soon? Well, there was no rationale for the DUP bringing down the executive. The negotiations in relation to the protocol were between the British government and the EU. They weren't going to be resolved in the Assembly or in the executive. So them taking down the executive and preventing us from taking decisions has really just harmed the people that we collectively represent. That's even worse now because the British government have now set a budget for us rather than us setting our own budget, which is going to be very, very harmful for public services. Uh, so, you know, we, we would call the DB to get back into the executive tomorrow. We are ready and willing to go back to work tomorrow. We've been willing to go back to work every day since they brought down the executive. Uh, they, they give an impression that they would be back in place before the Biden visit. That didn't materialise. They have suggested there might be an opportunity between this election, which is happening this week, and the summer break. I don't believe that will happen because with the marching season, the 12th of July coming up, unionism traditionally retrenches into its position rather than comes out of its trenches at that, that period. So it may well happen in the autumn, but the longer this runs on, the, the less in control the DUP are of their own support base, and, and who knows what might happen over a volatile summer in the north. So uh, the only people who will suffer as a consequence of this are people who rely on public services, people that we collectively represent across the north. Nations, unions and others will suffer as a consequence of having no government. So the DUP really need to get back and do their work with the rest of us. Absolutely gorgeous. I, I met James Martin when we were down at the uh, President Biden event in Belfast. Uh, and just a wonderful character. It has caused so much happiness because there are times when there's a lot of gloom around politically and things are happening. And just little moments like that. Uh, the film itself was beautiful. James's role in all of that and his embracing of his superstardom. Uh, now it's, it just brings a smile to everybody's face. So it was absolutely one of the moments. You could see in the Oscar ceremonies in Los Angeles how people took him to their hearts as well. So I think all in all, it, it is evidence, and, and tonight's gathering is, is more evidence that of of the, the the warmth there is to Ireland internationally. It's not just in the states and Canada, but internationally there's a warmth to Ireland. People people warm to Irish people because they know that there is a sense of, of humour and of understanding and of enjoyment of life there among Irish people, and they they warm to that. And I think that film and James in particular embodies that thing which draws people. And I think that's important internationally for us because it's a, a 
I said tonight, we're not a military power, we're not a world economic superpower, but we punch way above our weights because people have goodwill towards us and they warrant us. And when you mean, like, in that context, um, the film Belfast was also fantastic, as was Zoo. Yeah. Zoo was a wonderful movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, listen, there's some great talent in Ireland at the moment making pictures. Uh, with the, the Banshees of Inishirin and, uh, you know, the, 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 all those films. Belfast was a wonderful film because it, it explored growing up at the time of the Troubles and, and the idea of despair but also the idea of hope and the resilience of ordinary people in the middle of all of that that was going on. So, yeah, I, I think in the film industry in, in Ireland and North and South and particularly in Belfast has really taken off uh, creative arts uh, and I think internationally people have tapped into the skills and the talents that there are in the Isle of Ireland and that's only to our benefit in the longer term. Thank you for taking the time. I know you really appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much for having me and uh, thanks to all your listeners for listening in.